Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, thanks for joining our podcast. Uh, we try in this podcast to be the latest uh, and greatest when it comes to talking about pharmacotherapy that changes how uh, practitioners and pharmacists basically take a look at how they treat different diseases. And if it's going to impact a lot of, of, of uh, clinicians and if it's a, a late-breaking sort of thing, that's why we call it a game changer. And hopefully you'll find this pretty interesting. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a Longtime listener, thanks for, for sticking with us. And today, uh, we are going to be talking about the new twin cretin. And I'm sure you've probably, there's stuff in the news about this, a lot of stuff in the lay media and stuff like that. Um, it is uh, kind of exciting. And, you know, I guess, you know, it seems like, you know, with after many years of, of kind of struggling along with type 2 diabetes with not a whole lot of breakthroughs in the last 10 years or so, we've had, you know, several major, major breakthroughs. And this drug may have the potential to be another one of these major breakthroughs. So, you know, as, as we know, diabetes. Diabetes is, is not letting up as far as, it, as far as an epidemic is concerned. And, and as, as far as, as long as the obesity epidemic continues in the United States, we're just going to see more and more patients with type 2 diabetes. Fortunately, we have drugs like the GLP-1 drugs, the SGL-2 inhibitors, which have now become, you know, major drugs in our armamentarium. And probably everybody would be on them if we could afford, have people afford them. So, but we know that the GLP-1 drugs in particular um, have now become leading antihyperglycemic drugs. They significantly reduce A1C and especially in patients with high A1Cs. They seem to have a very pronounced effect in getting A1Cs under control. And a bonus to that, they also have a cardiovascular protective effect, which has now been shown in several studies. And of course, weight loss, which of course, why at least two of those medications are actually FDA approved for weight loss independent of diabetes. Now, these drugs, of course, are GLP-1 receptors. They act by stimulating insulin secretion in hyperglycemic states. They suppress glucagon secretion in hyperglycemic or euglycemic states. They delay gastric emptying. They decrease appetite and they reduce body weight. Now, incretin, of course, is, as I try to explain to my students, is kind of this second messenger that the gut basically releases after you eat, saying, hey, stop eating, you've eaten enough, and hey, pancreas, give me some more insulin and stop and stop secreting glucagon, basically. Um, and GLP-1 is one of the major uh, insulin uh, hormones of this, but it isn't the only one. And, and there's actually uh, several others, including one called GIP, which stands for glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, which I'm not going to say more than that one time. <laughs> for this podcast, I'm just going to call it GIP. This is another major incretin hormone in healthy persons. It is also, as the name suggests, insulinotropic, but unlike GLP-1 drug, it's glucagonotropic in a glucose-dependent manner. So what that means is that in patients who have high blood sugars, glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or, or again, GIP, stimulates the release of insulin, thereby lowering glucagon levels, but under normal blood sugar or hypoglycemic levels, it increases it. So basically, it acts as, as kind of a break on 
too much insulin basically being released. So it is basically a partner to GLP-1, which again, we now have a long, long experience with it as a type of drug for type 2 diabetes. So we now have a new drug that is brand spanking new, approved by the FDA just earlier in May 2020 called terzepatide. And this is a dual GLP-1 receptor agonist as well as a GIP agonist. And so the lay media are, are taking to calling this a twin cretin because it blocks or actually stimulates two different types of, of incretin receptors. And as Jen, again, just been approved by the FDA, FDA in early May. This is based on several studies that have been, been published, but we're going to focus on two. And I think the two areas that I thought were pretty interesting were one, it's comparison to uh, semiglutide as far as uh, uh, weight loss is concerned. And of course, you know, we now uh, have, you know, several studies showing the semiglutide seems to be a pretty powerful medication in, in helping people lose weight, independent of its uh, effects on diabetes. And then I also want to take a look at a study that takes a look at its ability to control blood sugars in diabetic patients compared to insulin. So these are two studies that we're going to talk about that aren't placebo control. They're actually active comparator studies, which is kind of interesting. So the first one we're going to look at is called the SURPASS-2 study. This was a study that compared semiglutide once weekly as add-on therapy to metformin in patients with type 2 diabetes. And and then that was one arm. And then it was a dose ranging study uh, that looked at, at terzepatide at doses of 5, 10, and 15 milligrams in, a, in separate arms in patients also on, on metformin. These were patients who all had type 2 diabetes that had been adequately controlled with metformin monotherapy. Um, it was a 40-week open-label parallel group randomized control study done in around the world, uh, 128 sites in the United States, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, and I won't list, list all the, 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 uh, the countries it was done in, basically. It was a multinational study. They included patients in the study who were over age, age 18 who had type 2 diabetes that was inadequately controlled with metformin at a dose of at least 1,500 milligrams a day. They all had to have hemoglobin A1Cs of 7 to 10%, and that's, that's pretty common in most diabetes studies. They don't want patients who are just way completely out of control, and so they kind of shoot for that kind of not at goal, but, but not, not crazy high A1Cs. That's, that's pretty common in most diabetes studies. Uh, they had to have a body mass index of at least 25, but what to have a stable weight for the last three months. They excluded patients who are type 1 diabetes, and key to this, they excluded patients who had an, an EGFR of less than 45 mils a minute, a history of pancreatitis, and most notably, they excluded patients who had a history of diabetic retinopathy, uh, apparently one of the concerns in early studies with uh, uh, the GIP drugs is that they may actually worsen diabetic retinopathy, and so they excluded patients who had that, and that might be uh, you know, an issue when, when, you're, when we're taking a look at patients who might be candidates is for this drug. It was a pretty standard uh, a study. They randomized patients in a one-to-one-to-one -one -to -one study. So you either got semiglutide at the standard dose and they, and they titrated patients up at a low dose up to one milligram a week or a once weekly sub-Q injection uh, with, with terzepatide at either 5, 10, or 15 milligrams. And again, in, in all the arms, they started at very low doses. So terzepatide was started at 2.5 milligrams once weekly, and then they were increased every, every month until they got to the, the target dose in that arm. And semiglutide was started at 0.25 once weekly until and, and doubled every four weeks until one milligram was, was hit. They did not allow de-escalation, which is very interesting. So basically, if you couldn't tolerate any higher of a dose, that's as high as you went, basically. So 
So the primary outcome uh, was the change in glycosylated hemoglobin from baseline to week 40. And we will certainly talk about that, but certainly what's gotten a lot of lay media interest was the secondary outpoints, which uh, the, the probably most important secondary outpoint was the change in body weight from baseline to week 40. They also looked at attainment of patients who, who reached their target A1C of less than 7%. And they even looked at patients who had a, a, a hemoglobin C of less than 5.7%, which would be essentially completely normal. Uh, they looked at, at a wide variety of other secondary endpoints at different weight loss cut points, 5, 10, 15%. They looked at lipid levels. They looked at uh, waist circumference. Again, all the things you would expect to see in, in these kind of studies. Looking at the stats, uh, they, they, uh, uh, this was initially a non-inferiority study, though we'll talk about the results and, and when they talk about superiority. It always makes me a little nervous when, when non-inferiority studies, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if they find non-inferiority, kind of, you know, do a switcheroo and say, oh, no, we also want to look at superiority. And, you know, I've always felt like you should kind of declare yourself in these studies. You're either a non-inferiority study or you're a superiority study, but that's not what happened. And that's actually becoming, uh, in my opinion, unfortunately, common in, in a lot of these studies. But basically, it was a non-inferiority study to basically show, uh, they, they, they wanted to show and say they had 90% power to show the non-inferiority of terzepatide at the higher doses, 10 or 15 milligrams compared to semiglutide with respect to change in baseline and, and A1C at 40 weeks. Uh, they had a margin of 0.3% for that and a two-sided alpha of, of 0.025, which is standard for non-inferiority studies. Uh, they did, and this is becoming, again, increasingly more common, especially in diabetes studies and lipid studies, something called estimands. And what an estimand is, is basically a precisely defined estimated measure of treatment effect. So they wanted to look at treatment effect from two ways. The first way they wanted to look, and, and it was called the treatment regimen estimand, and this was the treatment effect between terzepatide and semiglutide, including the effect of any additional antihyperglycemic medications for all patients who underwent randomization, regardless is if they continued or stopped either terzepatide or semiglutide, or if they added other anti-diabetic medications during the course of the study. So that was the treatment estimand. And then the efficacy estimand was basically all patients who underwent randomization uh, uh, with or without rescue medication. So the treatment estimand kind of, I think, is more real world and tries to take a look at you know, some patients are going to stop the medication. Some patients are going to have, have to have more medications added to control their, their blood sugars. Uh, whereas the, the, uh, the efficacy estimate was more, you know, I would say per protocol, if you were going to kind of take it a look at it that way, where they basically just looked at the efficacy differences without uh, respect to whatever medications that changes that occur during the study. So again, an attempt to make it, I think, a little more real world. A fairly large study, uh, they actually had 1,878 patients in the study who received at least one dose of terzepatide or semiglutide. Mean age in the trial is 56. 54% of patients were females. Uh, mean hemoglobin A1C was 8.4%, but 30% of patients had a hemoglobin A1C of, that was greater than 8.4%. Uh, and because of the, the, the EGFR requirement, 96% of patients had a creatinine clearance of, of greater than 60 mils a minute, and almost no patients had, had significant albuminuria. So taking a look at the primary outcomes at week 40, uh, they found reductions in hemoglobin A1C levels with terzepatide uh, at 5, 10, and 15 15 milligrams was essentially somewhere between 2.0 and 2.3 percentage points. So at 40 weeks, if you're on ter terzepatide, your hemoglobin A1C dropped somewhere between 2 and 2.3 percent, which is pretty impressive. Uh, this was compared with negative 1.8 percent with semiglutide at that 40 weeks as well. They had enough patients that was statistically significantly different and might be clinically significantly different if you're looking at the higher doses, because you're talking, uh, you know, a difference of about, you know, 0.5 percent hemoglobin A1C, which, you know, sometimes 
status with some of our medications. That's all we're really looking at as far as outcomes are concerned. So uh, again, they even though this was a non-superiority study, they did look at superiority and found that the uh, terzepatide doses were actually superior to semiglutide uh, at week 40 across the board, but particularly in the in the higher doses that had the higher hemoglobin A1C drops. That's good, and but that's not what the lay media has really focused on. What the lay media is focused on is the mean weight reductions, which were pretty impressive. So the mean body weight reductions in the in the terzepatide 5, 10, and 15 milligram arms were negative 7.6 kilograms, negative 9.3 kilograms, and an astounding negative 11.2 kilograms at 40 weeks with the 15 milligrams of terzepatide compared to negative 5.7 of semiglutide at all doses. Again, it seems to be that this was a lower dose of semiglutide. So, you know, would higher doses give you a better weight loss? Bottom line was that they saw impressive weight loss. And certainly in the lay media, they're talking about how the, this weight loss, you know, kind of approaches some, some forms of, of weight loss surgery. I don't know about that. I think you need an actual study to, to do that. But bottom line is they, they saw some pretty impressive weight loss reductions, all doses, but particularly at the higher doses they found. They found that when it took a look at like total percentage of body weight, 57% of patients in the terzepatide group had a body weight loss of at least 10% and 36% of patients had at least a 15% loss of body weight. So again, one third of patients lost 15% or more of their body weight. So again, the, the lay media is kind of all over this saying this is a you know breakthrough medication as far as weight loss is concerned. It certainly seems to Impressive, but you know, again, comparing it to things like gastric sleeve surgery, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little unsure about that. Of course, safety was reported, and as you might expect, with the incretin type drugs, nausea and vomiting was the most common side effect. The numbers were very similar to semiglutide, so about about 18% of, of both patients in both the arms that reported nausea and vomiting. Basically, most cases were mild uh, to moderate severity, and did occur with with dose escalation, but was also transient, and most patients tolerated it pretty well. And pancreatitis is is a, is a concern with all the GLP one drugs. It was actually reported in, in two patients in the different terzepatide arms compared to three patients in semiglutide. And they said, they pointed out specifically that no cases were serious. That's important to me as an inpatient pharmacist, because I can certainly tell you that, that pancreatitis can be very serious in some patients. Uh, they didn't find any reports of, of thyroid cancer because all GOP-1 drugs have, have a boxed warning for that. But this, the numbers, I don't, I didn't think were really powerful to show that. But they did find two cases of diabetic retinopathy in the, in the terzepatide group. So again, there's going to be an Achilles heel to this drug, it's going to be patients who are at risk for diabetic retinopathy because that may do this. So again, the lay media has really uh, jumped on the study saying this is a, is a huge breakthrough. Um, again, I'm, I'm a little bit more sanguine than, than, than that, but it certainly seems that terzepatide um, in diabetic patients has impressive weight loss abilities. It also seems to lower hemoglobin A1C. Again, 2.3% in the higher doses at 40 weeks is as powerful as really any other drug we can think of. And, and these aren't patients who had, you know, incredibly high, you know, 50 16% hemoglobin A1Cs, these, you know, the mean A1C was 8.4%. You know, they, they had a very powerful effect, even in patients with moderately high hemoglobin A1C. So again, pretty impressive drug when it comes to weight loss uh, compared against uh, one of its cousins, if you will, semiglutide. But what about its effect against insulin? Now we're going to look at its effect against insulin in a sub-study of the SURPASS-3 study called the SURPASS-3 CGM study. And, and again, I wanted to take a look at this study in particular, even though it's a sub-study, because it does a very good job of examining um, something 
something that is becoming increasingly important in the diabetes literature, which is time and therapeutic range. Those uh, pharmacists who, who have done warfarin their whole lives are well aware of the concept of time and therapeutic range. You know, what percentage of the time is somebody in if with warfarin and INR of, say, between two and three? With the advent of continuous blood glucose monitoring, we're now able to use time and therapeutic range patients who are not either hypo or hyperglycemic, what percentage of the day as a powerful um, outcome measure in patients with diabetes. And the latest ADA guidelines say that continuous glucose monitoring should be considered as a way to monitor how patients are doing with their anti-diabetic therapy. So in this study, this was, again, a sub-study of the SURPASS-3 study uh, where they compared patients with either terzepatide or insulin deglutec. So, and, then, and that was once daily. So this was a uh, sub-study of a, of a one-year active control open-label parallel group phase three study, again, surpassed three, but it was a subset of the study who willing and able to undergo continuous blood glucose monitoring. It was done, again, worldwide, but mostly in Europe, but, but some in the United States as well. They underwent a three-week screening and then a leading period, the 52-week treatment period, and then a four-week safety follow-up period. Uh, patients had to be over age 18. They were insulin naive, so had never been on insulin before, and had type 2 diabetes, again, in that seven A1C of 7 to 10.5% on stable treatment with either metformin or alone or in combination with an SGL2 drug. So unlike the previous study, they could be on an SGL2 drug and metformin as well for at least three months. They had to be able to use and understand and be willing to use a continuous blood glucose monitoring system, as well as having a, quote, normal sleep-wake cycle. So I guess in patients who work the night shift, maybe they weren't allowed to be in the study. Patients in the main study were then randomized again, one-to-one-to-one-to-one to receive once weekly terzepatide at that 5, 10, or 15 milligrams, or insulin deglutec starting at 10 units once daily, and then titrated up via an algorithm to reach a, a, a blood glucose monitoring goals. And we have links to the study in, in our show notes, and you can take a look at the uh, appendix that they have that has the, the algorithm that they basically used. They also stratified patients based on if they had a hemoglobin A1C of less than 8.5% or greater than 8.5%, what country they were in, which makes sense because different countries may have different drugs available for diabetes, and then whether they were either on metformin by itself or metformin and an SGL2 inhibitor. The starting dose of terzepatide was 2.5 milligrams once weekly for four weeks. And again, just like the, the previous study, they increased increments by 2.5 every few weeks until they got to the to target dose. They did allow de-escalation if GI side effects were, were intolerable. So again, that's unlike the SURPASS-3 study we just previously mentioned. And again, deglutec was started at 10 units once a day and then titrated to a fasting blood glucose of less than 90 via a, a, an algorithm. And again, these patients were looking at continuous blood glucose monitoring. So the primary objective of the study was to take a look at the proportion of time it, using the continuous glucose monitoring values that patients were basically in, in, in tight range, and they, and they define tight range as a blood sugar level of 71 to 140 at 52 weeks in the pooled terzepatide 10 and 15 milligram groups versus those who are in the insulin to glutec groups. They also had a number of secondary exploratory endpoints. They looked at 24 weeks and 52 weeks in this time in therapeutic range. They also looked in patients who had uh, excessively high blood sugars or excessively low blood sugars at 52 weeks as well. And they defined hypoglycemia as a, as a blood sugar concentration of, of, of less than 70 or a percent. The statistics were pretty, pretty straightforward, much simpler than the surpassed three study that we talked about previously. So I didn't see anything unusual there. When we took a look at baseline characteristics of the study, a mean age was 57, 55% of patients were female, 93% were white. And of note, 70% of patients were on metformin alone. So only a small percentage of patients were on uh, an SCL2 drug and metformin. 
and mean hemoglobin A1C was 8.2%. So again, you know, these weren't patients who had hemoglobin A1Cs of 12, 13, 14%. They, they were fairly, you know, I wouldn't say they're not at goal, but certainly not way out of control either. And here's the, here's the kicker. So when we talk about the results at 52 weeks in the 10 and 15 milligram terzepatide groups, they had significantly higher percentage of times in therapeutic range at 70 to 140 in a 24 hour period compared to those given to Glutec. 73% of patients in their zepatide uh, arm were in that group in a 24 hour period compared to only 48% of patients in the insulin to Glutec arm. And that was statistically significant. And I think everyone would agree, very clinically significant. So, I mean, it, it really had a significant superiority of having patients in, in the therapeutic range for a longer period of time. They looked at 24 weeks and 52 weeks. It was also statistically significantly higher in patients who were on terzepatide compared to insulin to Glutec. So they didn't have to wait the whole year to get that. Uh, the duration of time in therapeutic range per day, uh, patients in the terzepatide groups were basically in therapeutic range by anywhere, anywhere from three to six hours more a day than the insulin to Glutec group. So very interesting. And basically the estimated treatment difference of just patients, basically patients in control at 52 weeks was 25% favoring the terzepatide group. And as I said, you know, up to six hours a day in, 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 the, in the target range, basically. Uh, interestingly, but maybe not surprisingly, uh, less uh, uh, patients in the terzepatide group had hypoglycemic episodes. And again, given how the drug works, that kind of makes sense. Interestingly, though, there wasn't a statistically significant difference between terzepatide and insulin glutec among super high blood glucose levels. So again, you know, it seemed to protect against hypoglycemia, and but didn't go the other way and allow super large exclusions of blood glucose. So the authors of this study basically said that when you compare these two in, in patients who are on basically metformin and, and or an SCL2 drug, that this uh, medication was more effective at keeping people in time and therapeutic range compared to going right to insulin. Now, it is worth noting that very few patients who have a hemoglobin A1C of 8.2 are going to go to insulin. They're, if they're on metformin, we're going to try other medications. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that we should, you know, abandon insulin or anything along those lines, but it is, is worth noting that the GLP-1 drug was more effective at keeping people in time and therapeutic range. And again, probably because of the, of the safety catch of not causing hypoglycemia, but also not allowing super large excursions in blood sugars compared to insulin. And so it'd be very interesting to see as, as, as this drug gains more data and more interest, will we see it being used more in patients who, again, we might go, hey, we're going to go to insulin to Glutec uh, or, you know, or any other insulin would, if they're not already on a GLP-1 drug or something like that, should they be on this, again, twin cretin drug? And will that give us, you know, better time and therapeutic range and perhaps better hemoglobin A1Cs? Now, the drug has just come out on the market. We don't know a, a ton about long-term safety. And that's something that I, that I think we all have to keep in mind. Again, this diabetic retinopathy is something to keep in mind. But the other piece is that, of course, it ain't cheap. And it looks like it's going to be, unfortunately, about $1,200 a month cash cost. So you're talking about $15,000 a year. You know, um, I'm sure most insurance companies are not going to be jumping up and down to pay for this, at least at first. That's going to, of course, temper a lot of its use because I think, again, it's just really out of the reach of, of, of almost all patients, unfortunately, at that kind of price. But I'm also sure the company will, will have its various and sundry patient assistance programs. And again, if you have a patient who, who is especially an obese patient who fits, fits the, the, the criteria of these surpassed studies, it's just something to kind of think about. So I suspect we're going to see more terzepatide studies as they come out. Um, I think that it seems like it's, it's a pretty decent drug, especially for weight loss in diabetic patients. Um, it seems to be, uh, you know, perhaps safer than insulin in, in, in type 2 diabetic patients or receiving metformin. And so the $64 question will be, you know, down the road, you know, we have more studies that show uh, more benefits compared to, you know, old G, older GLP-1 drugs or insulin. And will the cost, you know, like these medications basically be the number one reason why most people who could be on them um, are not.
So, so that's this week for uh, Game Changers. Again, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.